0: And maybe would ask for us this morning is, is that true for you this morning? Is that true for me? Is, is the grace of Christ enough for you? Or, or is there something else that you think you need? Is there something else that you feel like you need to add on to the grace of Christ in order to find meaning, in order to find hope? in order to find value in your life, in order to make yourself acceptable to God or acceptable to those around you. Those are the questions of uh, the letter to the Galatians. What does it mean that Christ has set us free? And we're going to be exploring that a little bit more this morning. My name is Kurt. I'm also one of the pastors here. I want to add my welcome to you this morning. Uh, Wow, New Zealand. Where where are our friends from New Zealand? Woo-hoo! I'm going to point you out again. That's great. Thank you so much. While you may have the the, the longest distance, uh, our family also has a special guest. My father, Bill Nothelfer, is with us all the way from San Diego, so we want to welcome him this morning. Not quite New Zealand, but uh, it's fun to have guests come and visit. If you are visiting with us this morning, don't rush off after the service is over. We'd love to meet you and find out a little bit more about who you are. Uh, And now as we looked into God's word and ask this question of, is Christ's grace enough for us? Do we truly know what freedom in Christ means for us? Would you pray with me? God, we do ask that you would speak to us, not only through your word, but especially through your spirit. Would you allow us to understand that you have a message of grace for us today and hope that that grace is sufficient to meet all of our deeper longings and needs? Would you help us to understand that the gift of of grace through Jesus Christ is one that comes as as a personal gift in the gift of Jesus himself? As we seek relationship with him, we ask this in his name. Amen. As I said, we're going to be going through the summer, working through the book of Galatians, and and asking this question of what does it mean that Christ has set us free? And, And the pivotal claim that Paul has in this letter comes near the end of the letter, at the beginning of chapter five, where he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. In order to understand this freedom that we've received through Jesus, Paul is going to be encouraging us to understand that it is not only a freedom from, but it is a freedom for as well. It is not only a freedom from our sin and from the judgment of the law, but ultimately we have to take that next step that understanding that Christ has set us free for a new life in Christ, a new life empowered by the presence of His Spirit within us, guiding us to live out the life that God has called us to live. The quick backstory, if you weren't with us for the introduction last week, is that in one of the earliest New Testament letters written, the Apostle Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia that he helped to start on his first missionary journey. Scholars suggest that he probably wrote this letter around 49 AD, somewhere before the Jerusalem Council, where he went to meet with all the other apostles to wrestle with these questions of, of what do we do with all of these non-Jewish people who are becoming Christians? And how do we live this out together? What does it mean? that they too have freedom in Christ. Upon arriving back in Antioch from his first journey, uh, after being out on the road for about 18 months, he quickly got word that some other false teachers, other Christian missionaries from Jerusalem had come and began to uh, get the Galatians off track with their understanding of what this good news or gospel message of Jesus Christ was really all about. This group of Christian missionaries from Jerusalem were labeled the Judaizers because they believed that living under the Old Testament religious laws of Judaism was a requirement to be a good Christian. In order to truly experience the fullness of the gospel, you had to, to take that next step to begin adopting all of those uh, religious practices and rituals that the Jews had been schooled in for years and years, That part of what gave them their own cultural identity as being God's people, apart. part from the rest of the world. But reminding the Galatians that that Paul came with the authority of one of the apostles, uh, meaning an agent of Christ or a direct representative. We might use the word ambassador today. Paul came as an ambassador of Christ and preaching this good news to them directly from Jesus. He writes to them hoping that he can convince them that the message that he gave them was the one true message that came not from the words of men, but directly from Jesus himself. And we're going to see that a little bit more today. These works of the law that the Jewish Christians were concerned with were particular Jewish customs that related to food purity and and living a separate life from the world around you. And the expectation was that these new converts to Christianity would become Jewish in their orientation in addition to being Christian. And what Paul is going to argue through this letter is that this was not the intention or the meaning of the outcome of the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross as God's Messiah. In fact, just the opposite. Because this Holy Spirit has now been poured out onto the hearts of all men and women, those former things that created distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, between slaves and free people, between men and women, between people of different ethnicities and economic classes have all been erased because the free gift of God in Jesus Christ comes for all people. The essence of the Christian life for Paul is not religious rule-keeping, but living in Christ and understanding what it means that we have the freedom to live by the power of his spirit in our lives. See, if we add anything to the f- sufficiency of Christ uh, that, and what he has accomplished for us, we in effect discount the accomplishment that he made by giving his life for us. Christ plus anything else gets us off track. The good news is that the, the free gift of grace in Christ and the presence of his spirit comes if we simply receive it As a gift. We stated it this way last week, if you were here, because of what Jesus has done, there is nothing that you have done that will make God love you any less. And there's nothing that you can do that will make God love you any more. There's nothing you have done that will make God love you any less, and nothing you can do that will make God love you anymore. Because we are set free in Christ and enabled to live by the power of his spirit, we no longer have to follow a prescribed set of religious laws and rules in order to be acceptable to God. What we said last week is that rather than being religious rule keepers, we begin to demonstrate the presence and the power of God's spirit in our own lives by how we live together And the fruit of the Spirit, Paul will say at the end of Galatians, will manifest itself in us in a way that takes us beyond religious laws and will allow us to become truly godly people. Now this morning, Paul continues his letter in uh, verse verse 11 of chapter 1, and he goes into a little bit of his own backstory. He wants to share with the Galatians a little bit of what brought him to their doorstep. And so picking up the story in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that I preached was not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, But I went to Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Now, we'll pause there. He goes on in the rest of that section to talk about all the the other things that he did after he had this experience of the risen Christ. And if you go to Acts 9, chapter 1 through 9, that we're not going to read today, it tells the story of Paul's conversion experience, how on the way to persecute the church on the road to Damascus, he had an experience of the presence of the living Christ that knocked him off his horse, that blinded him, and that allowed him to begin to see that he was missing, that Jesus was God come in the flesh to bring grace and freedom and to fulfill the promises of God. Now, scholars suggest that it's important that we understand this phrase where he says, the gospel that I preach. What was the gospel? What are the nuggets or the the essential pieces of Paul's gospel that set it apart from these Judaizers? Uh, Three quick things, three key dimensions to Paul's gospel. Number one, the new revelation That God's salvation is through Jesus Christ alone is actually a fulfillment of the original revelation given to the people of God through Moses centuries earlier. Or another way to say it is, rather than a rejection of the old system of religious laws, it was a new way of actually living out the purpose for why those laws were given. Second, a person now finds acceptance by God solely through faith in Jesus, and apart from living out those religious laws. That's what the point was last week. In this, we will see for Paul, Abraham was the true father of the faith, not Moses. Because Abraham, who was the one who was originally called, and it was his faith that was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is the true father of the faith because he was a man of faith, not based on religious laws and behavior. And thirdly, acceptance from God and participation in the community of God's people is open as much to non-Jewish people as it was to Jewish people. It is open now to anyone who would call on the name of Jesus. Now, now why is this important? Why are, is it important that we understand these key features of the gospel? Because this is what Paul is going to be referring back to and building his case on as we go through the letter. According to this gospel that, that Paul preached, we might be able to say it this way. It's not changed behavior that leads to a changed heart. It's a changed heart that leads to changed behavior. Let me say that one more time. It's not changed behavior that leads to a changed heart. It's a changed heart that leads to changed behavior. See, the law can prescribe certain behaviors, but it cannot change a person's heart. Yet if if your heart has been changed, if you've experienced a a new reality of life in Christ, then you will begin to fulfill the, the purpose that the law was given by living in the power of God's Spirit. Therefore, the starting point for the Christian life always has to be God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. See, what Paul is passing on is not a list of holy traditions handed down by the community for centuries. What he's passing on is is a direct experience of Jesus Christ and direct knowledge of what the Holy Spirit has spoken into his life to share with others as good news for them as well. Not only for Jewish people, but for all people. See, Paul's argument that for his independence from the Jerusalem church and these Judaizing Christians, for him, is a confirmation of his own calling as an apostle directly from Christ himself. So Paul's first point is that his message, his gospel, is independent from human teaching. It comes directly from God. And his second point is that his calling as an apostle, as an agent of Christ, is independent from the authorities in the Jerusalem church as well. See, see his, his gospel is not a secondhand gospel. His faith isn't a, a second-hand faith. It's a direct faith out of his experience of Jesus himself. He received his message through his own relationship with Christ. And through this experience, he was called to pass it on to those who were of Gentile origin. See, for Paul, Revelation stands in a glaring contrast to passing on sacred tradition. That was his criticism of the Judaizers. Their basis of knowledge was sacred, holy tradition, where, where Paul was saying, my knowledge is of Jesus Christ himself, risen and alive. And it might beg the question for us this morning is, what would we do if the Spirit of God were to call us out of some of our own sacred tradition? What would we do if, if the Spirit of God rose up in us and called us to be something different or more than we are today? Would we, would we shrink back and hold tightly to what we're familiar with, what's been passed on to us from our previous generations? Would we, or would we seek to conform our lives to a new revelation that God might want to give us in Jesus? There are three aspects to the passage that we read today that I, I want to suggest can help us maybe answer this question for us this morning. The first one is, do we have a second-hand faith? Before you answer that too quickly, let's let's think that through. Do we have a second-hand faith? I'd like to suggest to you this morning that it's possible to show up for church Sunday after Sunday, to to read your Bible, to, to do all kinds of things, and not ever truly have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul is arguing here for is that the grace of God opens the door for us to have the presence and the power of the Spirit in our lives. But, but if we are not pursuing Christ in that way, if we're not taking the time to open uh, our lives and our hearts to the, the guidance and the leadership of the Spirit, we might be living a secondhand faith, living vicariously through the faith of our pastor, who comes in and shares God's word on Sunday. We might be living vicariously through the faith of our parents or our grandparents, who were people of faith, and, and intellectually we say, yes, we believe that Jesus is real, but then we go through our lives never taking the time to open ourselves to a real personal relationship, engaging. Jesus through his spirit. Do you have a firsthand faith this morning? I think that's a good question that Paul may have for us. See, a confirmation of the truth of Paul's gospel comes not from sacred traditions and religious behaviors done over and over again, but from a real abiding relationship with Christ in our lives. In this sense, having doubts about your faith, I'd like to suggest, isn't necessarily a bad thing. See, sometimes we, we, take, we, we, we are afraid of taking that step to have a firsthand faith be, because we're not sure if we believe God is real. We may come to the point in our own spiritual journey where we have questions about God, where we have doubts about uh, is everything in the Bible really true or how do we understand what is true? When I used to do youth ministry years ago. Uh, oftentimes there was this point in our students' lives in high school, whether it was uh, when they were about 17, sometimes it was 18, usually in that age range, sometimes it was a little earlier, but one or more kids would have this crisis of faith. And and you know what would happen is they would begin to question, is God real? Do I really believe what, what, what I've grown up in? Do I really believe what my parents have told me? Do I really believe what the pastor preaches on Sunday morning? And you know what they would do with that? They'd hide it away in their own heart, and they wouldn't tell anybody about it. You know why? Because they were afraid that they'd be criticized and judged for having doubts. But I, I, I had the opportunity to sit with those students and go, you know what? It is okay to doubt. It is okay to question. In fact, God wants you to ask the hard questions. God wants you to pursue him, to test him, to see, God, are you real or not? Because if you don't ever take that step of owning your faith for yourself, of establishing that relationship with God where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is real, then then you, you only have a secondhand faith. God wants us, like Jacob, to wrestle with him, to bring our questions and our doubts and our fears and say, God, you need to prove that you're real so that I can believe in you. But you see, then the, the, the real challenge is when God shows up, are we willing to say yes and to put our trust and our faith in him? God wants us to wrestle with our questions and our doubts and our fears. He wants us to pursue answers to those questions. And he wants us to confirm our faith in him by a direct relationship with him ourselves. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen God told the people of Israel, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. See, in that, God and Jesus are telling us we need to pursue God, to ask him to reveal himself to us so that we can have that firsthand experience of the presence and the power of God's spirit in our lives. Paul doesn't want us to have a secondhand faith, but a direct and personal experience of Jesus ourselves, which then leads us to the next Point that he makes that we we can kind of see from his own personal story is that ha- the question could be posed this way: Have we gone through a? biographical reconstruction. That was a, a, a term one scholar used that I love, a biographical reconstruction. You see, when, when God becomes real to you, and we recognize that, that Jesus not only died and gave his life to forgive us from our sins, but he rose from the dead and is alive and is the Lord of the universe, and he becomes the Lord of our lives, it completely rewrites our personal story. It completely reinterprets all of our life experiences going back to before we were born. And that's what Paul says, from from my mother's womb, God's call was on my life. Now, that's quite an audacious statement that Paul makes, if you think about it, because he was persecuting the church and killing Christians. But Paul's reinterpretation is that God's call was on his life while he was still in his mother's womb, and that all of the mistakes and the bad choices that he made and the ways that he messed up, God had a plan to redeem that and to turn it around, because if anyone could redeem uh, Paul and make him a Christian, it only could be God, right? Only God could turn the heart of a guy like Paul who was persecuting the church to make him the, the church's primary advocate to the rest of the world. So when when Christ comes in, when when we open our door to that that personal relationship, when we realize that, that Jesus is alive and that God is real, it completely begins to reorient and rewrite our personal story. A personal experience of the risen Christ forces us to decentralize our own ego and to centralize Christ. Another way that we used to talk about it in youth ministry, right, is who's sitting on the throne of your heart this morning, right? Are you on the throne Or are you stepping aside to say, Jesus, the throne is rightfully yours. You paid for it. You bought it with your life. You you bought it with your blood. You are the Lord. You are the master. See, Paul's calling and and the point being that only God could redeem somebody like Paul, the gospel teaches us to, to begin to live our lives as God sees them, as lives that have been redeemed and transformed by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And it teaches us to begin to shape our lives according to these new gospel categories where, like Jesus, all of our lives become about living to please God the Father. Now, scholars suggest that it can be inferred from the controversy going on in Galatia that the Judaizers had tried to convince the Galatians that Paul was preaching a watered-down gospel. Have you ever heard that term in our time, right? Paul's preaching a watered-down gospel because he's throwing out submission to God and submission to the law, and he's got all this free, cheap grace. You mean you don't have to do anything to receive this gift? See, they're saying Paul just wants to make it easy for you to accept Jesus. So he's not giving you the full story. He's just saying all you have to do is believe and accept and you're good to go. Yet Paul counters by saying, I'm not trying to win your approval or anybody else's approval or to to gain people's trust. I'm preaching what God gave me to preach. The response back is, well, you know... You, you can't just preach free grace and acceptance without also adhering to these religious rules and, and behaviors. You, you know, we have to submit our lives to God. And Paul says, yes, that's true. But when he realized that the grace of God is, is free, he also acknowledged at the same time that it actually costs us everything. See, because for Paul, Christ has become Everything. Rather than being cheap grace that requires no life change, the grace of God in Christ actually sets us free to begin to reimagine our entire lives under this new reality that God has saved us from our sin and has set us on a path through his spirit to live a new life in him. It really costs us everything. What might biographical reconstruction look like for you this morning? If God were to begin to rewrite your story in a new way and to reinterpret the experiences that you've had in life, what would be the point of the story in this season of your life? Might God be calling you out of a place of familiarity or comfort as, as, a, as a Christian who, who you're comfortable in your, your, your seat in the, in the sanctuary and you know where you like to sit and, and, and you, you kind of feel like you've got things figured out? Might God be calling you to, to maybe sit in a different place next Sunday? Right? Painful. And we laugh. But if you think about it, that's how we get stuck in our own habits, in our own sacred traditions. When your seat in a sanctuary becomes sacred then maybe God needs to shake you up a little bit and call you to a whole new experience. And if that's true for where we sit on Sunday morning, how much more true might it be with how we're spending our money, with where we're investing our time, with the people that might God be calling us to associate with? I mean, if we can't even, you know, give God our rear ends, (laughs) how can we give him things that are really of ultimate importance? What does biographical reconstruction look like for you and for me this morning in the season of life where we are? What might be God? What might God be calling us to consider as a new path, a new behavior, a new choice that He wants us to make in our lives? Which ultimately leads us to the final and the third question: Will we make a total commitment of our lives to Jesus Christ? Will we make a total commitment of our lives to to Jesus Christ. See, we can learn from Paul's own conversion experience and his own commitment how we too ought to be committed in our own lives. The one mark that stands out in Paul's life is that he committed his, his life to Christ in total, complete submission. Now, I have to be honest with you. I read Paul's story. I look at the letters he wrote, and, and, and I'm humbled, right? How, how could any of us live up to the example of Paul? And yet Paul sets himself out in his own writing as, as an example that we should look to, as somebody that we should follow, as somebody who has taken a further step down that journey, that if we too are willing to follow him, maybe we too can experience the presence and the power of Christ in our lives in ways that maybe we didn't anticipate or realize. See, in this, he's an encouragement and a challenge to each one of us. Paul reminds us by his own life and his own service that the grace of God sets us free, but it sets us free to set Christ as Lord in our lives. And unless and until we can make that same commitment, maybe not in, at, at the same level as Paul, but unless we can make that total commitment that God, all of my life is about serving you and everything that you've given me really belongs to you. And ultimately, God, I want all of it to bring you glory and not myself. We, like the Judaizers, somehow are trusting in and relying on something besides Jesus to try and, and, and bring us hope and happiness in life. What about you this morning? What is it that your heart is set on? What is it that you're looking to or hoping for, relying on to, to help you feel secure? To, to, to seek that happiness that you're looking for, to, to hope that somehow life is going to work out the way you want it to. Is it, is it material possessions and, and looking good to the Joneses? Is it, is it a person in your life that you think is going to be the person that completes you, that makes you ultimately happy? Is, is it somehow being able to have your time to yourself, to do what you want with all of your time? All of these things are good things. But Jesus invites us to to allow him to reorient all of those things under his call and purpose in our lives. What have you placed your hope and your happiness on this morning? See, Jesus taught us that when we die to ourselves is when we truly begin to come alive to him in our lives. In Luke 9, 23, he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And Matthew 10, 39 says, whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You see, men and women, brothers and sisters, Paul is telling us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. In order to understand this freedom we've received in Christ, Paul's encouraging us to understand that it's not just a freedom from, it's a freedom for. It's not just a freedom from sin and and, and the gift of grace that allows us to not live under the fear of judgment, but it's a freedom for giving our lives away to Christ, allowing the Holy Spirit to take control, to be our guide, to, to, to allow all of life to be about serving Him. He doesn't want us to have a second-hand faith that merely follows religious traditions that have been passed on from previous generations. He wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know that I know that I know that God is real. Why? Because I met him. Because I met him. See, for Paul and for us, the good news message is that Jesus paid it all so that we could live in this freedom of God's grace and experience real, abiding relationship with him in our lives. My prayer and my hope for us in this season ahead is that we will give God permission to rewrite the story of our lives, to rewrite the story of Faith Covenant Church, to reorient ourselves around Jesus Christ as Lord, because as we die to ourselves, We will come alive to the new life that he has for each one of us. Amen? Let's pray.